stage here. So I destroyed every doorway in our house at a very young age as I was learning how to drive. But I'd always had mobility, and I had very, very supportive parents, and I think that that's a huge thing for people with disabilities to have parents that encourage them um, and not provide additional barriers. So my parents were always um, eager to let me explore and try new things. Their motto was sort of, if you really want to do it, you'll figure out a way. And so when I was, and I have three siblings, and none of them have disabilities, but they were also very in, um, inclusive, I guess is the right word. So my older brother especially always wanted me to be able to do what my younger siblings did. And so for example, when I was young, he uh, wanted us all to go on a bike ride together. So he, uh, he put me on the newspaper rack of his bicycle and tied me up with twine so that we could all go together. We got in a lot of trouble for that particular instance, but that was one of his ideas, to try to make sure that I could do everything with uh, my siblings. And so I had a really fun childhood, and in fourth grade, an orchestra came to play for my school. And I just fell in love with the way the strings sounded, especially together, that ensemble song of strings just kind of gave me goosebumps. And I, I knew that I wanted to try to play the next year. And I guess I went home that night and I told my mom, I really want to play the cello, but if cello doesn't work, I think I'll be able to play violin up and down, because people with disabilities are always adapting. That's one thing that we, we think, oh, were you afraid to try something that wasn't made for you? Well, that's basically my whole life. So you end up kind of adapting as you go all the time, and it's just a way you think. So um, I introduced uh, my mom to the idea of orchestra, and then the next year, in order to join, you had to take a music listening test. And I was the only student that year that got a perfect score. And the only, I don't, I'm not like that proud of it, that's not why I'm telling you right now, but I think the reason that the teacher was willing to work with me, she could see that I was, um, probably didn't do well at it, and she, that I would enjoy it, because I was musical. And so, even though she had never adapted an instrument for someone before, and she was just a regular public school music teacher, right? She said, I really want to try to help you figure this out. So, together, we experimented. I tried the cello, it was too big. The little violins, even the teeny tiny ones for like three-year-olds, were too long for my arms, but that violin, method of playing up and down like a cello works. And so I have been doing that ever since I was 10. And so I did went the strong way from school, got into folk music and Celtic music in college, and then eventually, because of Alan's far half of the Grand Bow, I was introduced to looping pedals. And that's when creativity creatively um, my music started to shift with my songwriting and certainly not expecting to win. I mean like not even in the realm of my brain. And so when that happened, it was a really big um, surprise and a big opportunity to try to travel with music and do things out of the state because I've never really performed outside of Minnesota before then. And um, when uh, my husband and I started touring, that's when I started realizing how inaccessible the music industry is. Like, I kind of knew that it was inaccessible in my own town. Like, many of the venues I had to be lifted on stage with my giant wheelchair and it was not easy to do, but it was something that I kind of thought was reserved for small towns in northern Minnesota. And then we started traveling and realizing that access was an issue in every city that we visited, like even New York. 
Sophia Devonmere had a lot of barriers. And so I started getting passionate about um, accessibility in the arts. And it brought me to this place where eventually I started meeting other disabled artists and we decided to do something about it. We, we knew that we wanted to see the music industry start addressing this big gap in access. Um, it's not just for physical venues, like online software for recording is often extremely inaccessible for brand artists, for example. So there's many different ways that the industry um, you know, hasn't worked to make itself inclusive. And so it's not just my experiences, but there's a lot of other kinds of ways that we haven't really addressed, right? So we started RAMT, Recording Artists and Music Professionals with Disabilities. The founder, her name is Pachi, she's a black blind EDM artist from New York City, and I'm the co-founder, so I kind of like wanted to support the work that she had envisioned. And what's cool about RAMT is that I didn't realize that I wasn't, I mean, I was never really alone. I, you know, I was feeling very isolated trying to navigate every show and like, you know, like maybe, for example, getting a ramp in the ASL is not something that happens necessarily at this point at every event at Carlson, although hopefully that will be taken or that's my sneak attack approach, right? So, um, like, I, it's a thing that is a little extra work and you feel isolated. And so in ramps, I started to realize that there are many other artists, you know, there's 60 members of with professional artists, which means we do music for our living. There's 60 of us now, and we grow every year, and we're letting in a few new people every month. And so um, I realized that there's a bunch of us, and that one thing we all got really excited about, which is what I want to talk to you about today, is this concept of disability culture. So we should all agree, I hope, I think, that diversity is an important thing, and that your identity, whatever diverse identity, or you know, whatever identity period, because I'm a very universal person. Where do you come from? What body you live in? What history you have? What economic background you have? All of these things shape the kind of music that you make, the kind of art that you create, the kind of writing that you do. Like, your identity shapes the work that you put into the world. And if you want to accept the idea that a diverse world that is more, that you hear more voices, uh, see more perspectives, honor more ways of living. If that world is the world we're looking at, we can't leave disability out of the picture. So we believe in RAMP that disability is a form of diversity. Just, it's not a medical, I mean, you know, there is a medical component problems to my like disability, but a lot of disability stems from um, just the way you move in the world because of the body and the mind that you inhabit. There's nothing inherently positive or negative about disability, the same way there's nothing inherently positive or negative about any other form of diversity. It just is diversity. And so for us, we wanted to create art from a place that celebrates this unique perspective. But we were starting from ground zero in the form of art. I mean, what I mean by that is publicly. I think there's always been disabled artists as long as art has been around disabled people have been making it, but we don't have a lot of framework in our culture that like gives us a place to feel belonging. And so we created a definition of disability culture. And I'm gonna read that word for word for you here just so that you can hear what we think about when we think of disability. Because something that we acknowledge as a group 
is that often people on the outside who are not disabled look at our lives through a lens of like either pity or oh man, you think I'm not like them or like disdain or whatever the word is. It's not coming, they don't look at us and think, wow, their lives are positive, right? And we want to change that. There's a big gap between how we're viewed and how we view ourselves. And disability culture is the way that we want to change, like reduce that gap. So I'm going to read the definition for you now. It says, disability culture is a celebration of people who identify as disabled. It acknowledges the vast diversity of disability um, and the experience of being disabled. And it also acknowledges every person's inherent and equal worth. It is unapologetic, creative, innovative, adaptable, imaginative, and rooted in problem solving. It is based on a premise that disability needs to be seen, respected, included, and celebrated. It includes our worldviews, our perspectives, our contributions, our words, and our music. Disability culture, at least in part, is a vibrant and thriving counter-response to the exclusion, marginalization, and oppression that historically and currently is experienced by many people with disabilities. So that, like, the idea that we can create a whole new culture that celebrates the unique things that disabled people bring to the table and the unique art that we create because of who we are, that's what gets us really excited. And we are excited about it. But the thing that I want to share with you is in order for the rest of society to also be able to celebrate disability culture, there are two things that need to happen first. So it's one thing to say, well, yes, I celebrate disability culture. I think everybody has inherent value, and I think disabled people can bring something to the table. That's one thing to say it, but if I'm not able to get into the room, right, if there's no access, then how can we really celebrate disability culture? If I'm never invited to the table because there's no inclusion, then how can we celebrate disability culture? So I want to talk first, just real quickly, about accessibility and inclusion that can bring us to this place of celebrating disability culture. So um, the mission of RAMPS is worded this way. It is worded to advocate for accessibility, promote inclusion, and celebrate disability culture. So um, advocating for accessibility, there's a few basic things that anyone can do. So usually when I give talks, right now it's been mostly to like specific music organizations, but this is for everybody. I really believe that accessibility is something that you, even in a dorm room, can be thinking about, right? It doesn't have to be just big, top-level organizations changing things. Um, accessibility is, like, many layers. The first one is buildings. So if you're having an event, and I'm literally talking about you're throwing a birthday party or you are planning a conference, like, it doesn't matter. You really need to think about where is this place someone can get to if they have a disability. Like, that in 2023, it's just unfortunately not an acceptable thing to say, oh, I didn't realize there were five steps. Like, you know, unfortunately, that's where we are at, is that it still happens a lot, but if you know, then you can start to be more mindful. Where am I planning this party? If somebody, you know, in a wheelchair wanted to come, would they be able to get in? And, and I don't have every answer on 
and you actually want to see them and like get to know them and learn from them, you have to start asking them, what do you need? I'm going to plan a party, what, you, what would help make this work, right? Um, so, first of all, the building. But then, online, there's a lot you can do. From the college student to like a multi-million dollar company, it's all the same. There is a lot of exclusion online because people who are blind can't see the pictures or get the gifts or understand what's associated because they can't see the image that you're sharing. And then deaf people can't understand it either if you don't have captions. And so even though it takes a little bit more work right now, because I don't think it will forever, I think we're getting better and better at figuring out how to automate this stuff in a way that's meaningful, not just like verbally good. Um, but for right now, if you want to be more inclusive and accessible, it's really important to think about the things you put out online, like your social media, alt text. How many of you know what alt text is? Okay, a few of you. That's good. But now you will all know. Uh, alt text is a little image description. It doesn't have to take forever. If I was going to do alt text about this moment right now, I would say Gail is in a wheelchair on the stage, and there are people in the audience in a big cathedral. And that's what I would say about describing the scene. It takes about 10 to 15 extra seconds to type up an image description, but all of a sudden, not only is it just practically more accessible for people who are blind to rely on those, because their computer will read them that image description, it is also a sign that you care. Like, if a blind person hears, all of a sudden an image description pops up, like, you thought about them, and they know that. And that is what matters. Is there's, a, there's a saying by these people that I really admire, Alice, Wong, Neil Mingus, and Sandy Ho, they're three Asian American um, disability advocates, and they have this phrase that they created called access is love. Really, any time you think about access, you are just being a more loving individual in the world. So like, don't think about access as a checklist that I gotta get, even though there are components that you should think of, right? It's really about uh, the way you bring yourself to the access work. And it's about being a more loving individual member of the community. So, so online access captions are pretty easy to put in. Um, they're getting easier. Um, there's software I use one called capwing.com. Um, just think about sharing captions, enabling captions whenever you can. Just because, again, if somebody who needs them recognizes that you actually thought about it, it, it means a lot. I mean, the bar is very low. You can, like right now, anything you do for access is going to make people feel seen, right? And respected and cared for in their community. So that's another thing you can do. ASL and captions at live events. Now this is maybe so much for like a birthday party, but for any event like this, the reason I have an ASL interpreter is not necessarily that somebody requested it. It's because I feel like it's an important piece so that a deaf person can walk in to this event and feel welcomed without having to do a bunch of extra work to make sure that their needs are going to be met. A lot of part of disability that gets so tired is that you end up having to do extra stuff just to do what everybody else does every day. Like your work, your life is more work in some ways because the world's not set up for you to be able to really get to the A to B. You're doing a lot more like physical and mental labor. And so to take that labor away and say, you know what, I'm have ASL at every event. It's like, why not? And I'm going to advertise it. So that's the next piece. 
in your policies, in your advertising. Make sure you say, if you're going to make the extra effort to be accessible, make sure you're actually putting that out there so that people who are disabled to know, oh my gosh, I can go to this show because it's in an accessible space. You know, that's an important piece of information. Um, being flexible in your policies, right? Like, um, some people right now with disabilities, I am comfortable going out when people are wearing masks. Some people are still really locked down in the disability community because of COVID. So having online options is like a great way to just be flexible and make it more accessible because access is well. And then in your attitudes, you know, like it's a difficult thing to know if you are safe to share when you're frustrated or when something's not accessible. Um, so just make it clear. In the same way that we want to be safe for everyone to say, you know what, that that hurt my feelings, that wasn't an appropriate thing to say. Disabled people need to feel like they can express if something's not accessible. So just like be an ally. Just, you know, tell people that you're an ally. If there's ever anything you need, um, be an ally in the same way that I hope that you are doing for other minorities in this country. So um, about accessibility, I think the big thing is that you're not going to know everything. I mean, I don't know everything. I, every event I plan, every play that I write, like I'm working on a play right now, and I'm learning from people in the disability community about how to make it more accessible. So I'm not expecting us to leave this room and suddenly get everything right. But what I am going to ask you to do, no matter if you're a student or like the, like the team of this school, right, is start asking disabled people if there's anything that you can do to make things more accessible. And then actually listen to the feedback, right? Because that's a big part of it is we need to not just ask for input, but by the instrument, right? So I hope that that helps to think about accessibility. Think about it as access as well, and that it's all about just kind of looking at the things you're doing when you're inviting your friends, when you're planning an organizational event, when you're running your classroom, all of those things, just kind of thinking through access piece by piece, and then really having a dialogue with the people who you're inviting so that they feel welcomed. The last thing, or the second to last thing, is promoting inclusion. So, um, as I said, it's one thing to have really cool culture going on, but if people aren't invited to the table, they can't share their culture, right? And so just thinking about ways that you can be more inclusive. So this could look different depending on your life. Like, um, you know, in some ways it just means learning about disabled people. And maybe you have never taken the time to, like, read about our history, read about the disability rights movement, watch the movie Crip Camp. Like, if you do nothing else, I will consider this speech a success if you all go watch the movie Crip Camp. Like, please just go watch it. How many of you have seen it already? A lot more of you need to see it. It's very good. I mean, I cried through, like, the whole thing. It's not sad. Don't worry. It was so, um, yeah, so invite people to the table, though. Like, if you're in a position, maybe in 10 years, you get out in the work world, you can hire people. Start thinking about disability as a, as a thing that is okay, that, that you can accommodate, that you can work with, that you can bring to the table. Start hiring disabled people. In the music industry, we always say, you know, is your lineup diverse? Like, do you have disabled people represented in this and if you don't, like, let us help you. Let us help you find someone. So, so do, uh, there are places that can help people with disabled people for work. 
And then there's ways to get us at the table. Um, a big part of it is just making sure that it's clear that your business or your organization or your club or whatever it is you run is a welcoming space. And then just putting that out into the universe, putting it on your job descriptions, um, all of those things are signals that it's a good idea to apply for this job because you're open to accommodating it and working with us. Um, and then I think the biggest part about inclusion for me is it's one thing to have disabled people invited, which is great, and that's really necessary, but having disabled people in leadership, and this is probably more of like the top level college talk, is having disabled people in leadership needs to go all the way up, because it's very difficult to make changes, to advocate for this accessibility we're talking about if disabled people can't get promoted to a place where they can actually help make these changes, right? And so consider the leadership of, for example, Carlson is are there disabled people in, in leadership roles? Are they working on getting more disabled people in leadership roles? Um, how many professors identify as disabled? Like these, you know, these things matter because change happens so much faster when we're allowed to give opinions and have authority to make changes. And so in your own work, inclusion, wherever you end up in whatever industry you go to, inclusion is something that's really, really important in the music industry and also in every facet of life. Because disabled people are in every single industry. And that brings me to the idea of celebrating culture. So how many of you have heard of Judy Heenan? Raise your hand if you have. I'm glad I'm here. Okay, yes, Judy Heumann, she just passed away in March. Ooh, gonna be emotional a little bit. Whoa, that's Anyways, she was um, basically a mother of the disability rights movement. So she, in the, like, oh, I'll get up with myself, sorry. I haven't talked about her on the stage yet. So she was the lady if you've seen Cryptchat, the, the, the kind of centered the story around. So she um, was just a kid who went to a camp for kids with disabilities, but she decided that she wanted to see things change. And so when she got out into the world, she created change, basically. She, she started change, like stopping buses, because this was before buses were wheelchair accessible. This is before there were curb cuts. Like, we owe a lot of stuff to this person that nobody knows about. So she um, she would like stop buses with her wheelchair. She would jam her chair into the bus, basically, so they couldn't move. And like they stopped traffic in the middle of New York City to raise awareness about the lack of accessible transportation. And then they eventually decided that they needed to change the laws. So there was a bill, um, the Vocational Rehabilitation Act, in the 70s, and there was a little tiny addition called Section 504, which was a big deal. It was before the Americans with Disabilities Act, because it was in the 70s, that wasn't signed until 1990. So in the 70s, there was this little tiny section that said, anything that receives public funding needs to be accessible. And it's, um, it got stopped. Like basically, they weren't signing it because they didn't want to make changes to anything that received public funding, because that would imply, for example, colleges didn't have to be accessible before the 70s, because they wasn't, it just wasn't required. So 
Norwegian Cook College, basically. So anyway, so they ended up um, being very frustrated. The disabled people that Judy worked with and Newman was organizing, very frustrated that this bill was languishing and not being signed because people didn't want to put in the money and the time to think about access in public spaces. So um, she had a sit-in in the federal building in San Francisco. It's called a 504 sit-in. And it's the longest sit-in of a federal building that has ever been done in the United States. But we are talking about 150 people with disabilities with like massively varying needs. So people had to, like the Black Panthers brought food, um, the, like the churches and unions brought like supplies, like everybody got together to make sure that everybody would be safe in this building, but they sat in for like, I think it was like 26 days. It was a very, very long time. And finally, they passed the 504. We wouldn't have the ADA if they hadn't passed the 504. Like, we owe a lot to people like that. So when I say celebrate culture, like, how many of you have heard of the 504 sitting before today? Not enough of you. And that, you know why that is? We don't teach it in schools, which is so sad because how cool is it that a bunch of people with disabilities took over a federal building for almost an entire month and then like had a black people bring up a bunch of food. Like I think that is one of the coolest stories in American history. And I didn't remember about it until I was 27. So like it's a big deal if you don't talk about it. So when I say celebrate disability culture, I want you to leave this room, not right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just take some time to look up the history of disability rights. Like, it's really cool. Like, there are really cool artists. Go to rafpd.org and look up all the artists in ramps. I mean, there's like 60 of us. We tell them profile to listen to our music. Like, just realize if you feel there's a gap in your knowledge, which there almost certainly is, and it's not your fault yet. Like, at this point, we haven't done anything in our culture to celebrate disabled people, so I can't be mad at you personally for not knowing, but now that you know that there is a gap, do something about it, right? So celebrating disability culture might seem like, oh, well, why do I need to do that? I'm not disabled, but first of all, it could be tomorrow if you get hit by a car. And second of all, the reality is that disability makes the world, if we accommodate disability, if we include disability, if we celebrate disability, it actually means that everybody with a body is different in any way or changes throughout their life with anyone with a body is more welcomed. Like it's just more welcoming for everyone to have a world that's welcoming for disability. So disability culture starts with disability, but it ends in a world that's just a lot healthier and cooler and more inclusive and more welcoming. So I would encourage you to take some time to think about what you know or don't know about disability culture, what you can do to learn about it, and then how can you amplify it in any walk of life that you go from this space in the next 10, 15, 20 years. Like, make a point to include it when you think about diversity, when you think about amplifying, um, you know, people who have been oppressed or marginalized, consider disability. We're in every race, we're in every sexual orientation and gender and we're everywhere. Every economic group disability is everywhere. So just take some time to think about how you can include it in your own view as well.
Um, so I'm just glad to be here. I hope you look up to you today. Aside from sitting to watch a trip camp, go look at rent. There's a lot of cool places and a lot of cool things that we are doing. So I just want you to consider how you can start working that into your life in the future and you will not regret it. So thank you so much.
somebody still say no, right? And there's one that I have to look around. So the biggest barrier for any disabled artist at any level is there's just not a lot of spaces that are really accessible. So um, I had also started saying that if you want to bring up to the stage, I'm playing on the floor. Um, and you know, it varying in success. Like some venues are like great playing on the floor then. And some of them make it really cute and really cute stage in the front, and some are just clearly not doing anything to try to accommodate. And then some venues are amazing, like get a ramp like this one, or I have a, a venue that didn't even tell me they did a fundraiser two months earlier to raise money to get an accessible stage lift. I mean, so it's all over the map. Some venues build ramps and then take them down the next day. I try to talk them into like keeping them up forever. But like, um, it's a really wide range. And I think my message is you've got to do it in your own time and your own journey. Like, I didn't start like refusing to play in accessible venues. I had several years of like, why, why am I doing this? Um, I guess the thing, the thing that they saw that broke, well, that's a terrible analogy. The thing that it was not, the thing that made me change my mind is there was a venue I played at that got a ramp the first time, and then the second time they said, well, that was kind of expensive. We thought we would just lift your chair up, and um, the reality it kind of sunk in that day that like if I didn't draw a line in the sand, like it wasn't going to happen. Like basically that change. You have to be the change, and it sounds very cheesy, but I really think it's important for us to be the change in whatever way we can in the moment. Like, I'm not expecting every artist to do exactly what I do, um, but I do think we have more power than we think um, in terms of what we choose to say yes to. Um, and that's kind of my answer. I mean, I play a lot of weird venues. I play a lot of yoga studios and churches and community centers because I can't find regular venues, but I'm okay with that because it sends a pretty strong message. My platform helps, I think, to get the message out there, but I do believe that any artist could do it, that you will be preparing yourself for, and it's not the funnest choice, but I think it's the necessary choice, because my goal, and I know I'm talking a lot, sorry, my goal is that the next generation of artists will not have to do all this work. Like, and I don't think we're going to get there, though, unless we, in this generation, you know, tie ourselves to the bus microphone. If that makes any sense. Okay, cool. That's my end. Thank you. Um, I'm a uh, music trombonist with a condition called where there's an imbalance of cerebral fluid. Um, so as another disabled musician, I'm curious to know, when you meet new people, do you feel pressure to have to explain your condition? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, Right? And at some point, you actually want to talk about that part of it too, right? So 
she was asking questions, so I was like, you know, I guess I kind of like to talk about like the concerts. And she's like, but how much did you weigh when you were born? And I was like, that's just not relevant. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. Like, like, so I understand. Like, so it's, you, I think the big thing is to, to recognize, again, most people in this room have never heard of Judy Hewitt. Like, we have not done a good job with disability education. So I try to recognize that most times when people ask, inappropriate questions or want your whole medical history is coming not out of a, a terrible heart space, but it is still ignorant. So I don't have to give them answers when I don't want to. So I encourage, I mean, it's, it's, it's always going to be a little awkward right now. Like, this is where we are with the music industry, with disability awareness. We're in this awkward phase where we're demanding change, but people tend to have caught up with us yet. So it's probably going to always be, in this generation, a little bit rubbing up against things that suck. And you just kind of have to navigate it, but then how to put yourself in the mindset of, wait, if I do this, the next generation won't have to, right? So choose how much you want to disclose and never feel pressure to, to give you information that you don't feel like giving. And it's okay if it's different on a daily basis. Like, that's the other thing. Some days, I see little kids staring at me, and I'll like talk to them and then basically just ask, here's the secret. You ask a kid one question about themselves and then you don't have to answer anymore. <laughs> so um, I do that a lot. But some days, if a kid's staring, I just don't have the energy and I just kind of pretend like I don't know this, but the kid is staring. And I'm okay with that because I think you just kind of live in your own body and do it as much as you can, but recognize that you don't owe it to everybody to explain everything either. So, Hope that helps a little bit. We have time for one more question, Leanne. Is that okay? Oh, yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, hi, everybody. My name is Sarah, and I'm the director of the museum here. Um, first off, I just wanted to say thank you so much for your talk today. It was really meaningful. Um, and I have one sort of question and more of a response, I suppose. Um, one thing in Winter term next year, we're going to have a show at the museum where we're hosting two artists who identify as disabled and chronically ill and make work around the era of disability justice. So we're going to be kind of continuing this conversation with um, two artists based in New York. One is Ezra Venice, and the other is Shannon Finnegan. And Finnegan actually um, went to Carleton College and you know has an experience of being here on campus and identifying as a disabled student. Um, so I hope that is really helpful to everybody who's on campus. We also work with faculty members around our exhibitions. But then the other thing I'm going to do is just share a few practices that have really helped me as somebody who doesn't identify as disabled but works a lot with artists to do. Um, so one is accessibility writers. Right? And I know these kinds of writers as being a writer is coming from the music industry. We have this cultural conception of them where maybe you want like 12,000 green skittles waiting in your dressing room <laughs> as a musician when you show up. But, um, but they can be used in really creative and useful ways. So I now ask artists to provide an accessibility, if they provide accessibility writers. And there can be things in those writers like, you know, I need, when you book my accommodation, I need a tub because my body needs hydrotherapy. Things like that, or yes, there needs to be a ramp. And what I find really useful about these kinds of contracts is that 
Um, it's all in writing. I don't, I'm not asking the artists to repeat what their needs are all the time and continuously advocate for themselves. Um, so this, this is a practice that's also outlined in a resource guide written by an artist named Carolyn Hazard. And you can find it online if you Google Accessibility in Arts, a Practice, and a Promise. Um, there's lots of great resources in there. And I think that we're in this really exciting moment where we're having conversations with this one more and more. Um, and Carlton is a really great place to have those conversations. So, and then so thank you again. Uh, really glad to have you here.